Welcome to Brain Pain, where we explore the vast world of psychology. I want to thank you for being here. I'm John, your host, and you can reach me at john at brainpain.us. I'm really glad you're here today, and I want to remind you that I'm not a psychologist. I'm not a therapist or counselor, and we are simply discussing ideas and important aspects that surround uh, psychology. So let's get started, and as I start, I need to clarify something that I said in my last podcast. I said that when it comes to ethics and the law, the law wins. What do I mean by that? I want to clarify that specifically. When I say the law wins, what I mean is that the ethics that you stand by, if you violate the law, do not prevent you from suffering the consequences of breaking that law. The law may be unjust, the law may be unfair, but you absolutely will suffer the consequences of breaking the law. And therefore, the American Psychological Association, or the APA, does clarify that if there's a conflict, you can follow the law with an asterisk next to that, which is that you cannot do anything that violates human rights. Now, there's a whole lot of conversation about what that means and what human rights are, but basically, it's real easy that if you're causing someone harm, that's not acceptable. I want to talk a little bit today about the ethical theories Uh, and how they're applied. All of these tie into a couple really common themes. One is deception and research. Each of the theories, or philosophies, if you will, but ethical theories, as we call them, has some stance on deception and research. The idea being that we should only conduct research with informed consent. So that if you go in as someone who's going to be part of the research study, you should be able to know what's going to happen to you, and you can, you can consent to that research, whatever it is. However, we know that if there are some things that we want a natural reaction, we want to see how a person naturally reacts to a situation and, or set of circumstances, or you know, uh, basically we want to see the output from a specific input is what it comes down to. To do that, to get the natural response, you can't know what they're looking for. Because if you know, then you will, whether consciously or not, modify your response. So if we want to find out how an individual reacts to a test that they fail, there's no way they can pass it. They they know, you know, it's, it's just way out of the league of anything that they've done. We want to see how they react and how they cope with knowing they're going to fail the test. Well, if I tell you this in advance, and you already know that you can't pass the test, that would be a very different response than if you came in saying, hey, I'm going to take this test, and as you go through it, you realize that it's not just a, hey, informational, it's actually a test, and you can't pass it. How do you react? What is your emotional response? To get that, we have to deceive the individual and say, hey, we want you to take this test. Do you consent to take the test and let us use the results? Blah, blah, blah. However, is that ethical? Is the amount of stress or mental anguish you're going to feel unethical? 
and that's that's the bottom line. And and it gets worse. And there there are very famous uh, studies that were done before these ethics were put in place that were questionable from the outset, and then the results showed that they really were unethical unethical tests the way they were performed. So that's one of the many things that are addressed in these theories and confidentiality is another one, although not nearly as commonly discussed. And everyone understands that confidentiality to have a good, to give someone therapy, to to help them reach their goals and heal emotionally, mentally, find the things that will help them cope in society, that they have to trust that you will not go around telling every detail of what they trust you with. We know this. It's just like you trust your close friends with, you know, some things that you would never trust the general public with or someone you don't know as well with. So confidentiality is a big deal. Having said those things, let's get into the theories themselves. The first theory I want to discuss is referred to by several different names. It's absolute ethical theory, uh, universal ethical theory, personal Kantian ethics. These are all the same thing, right? And it boils down to obligation over outcome. And what do I mean by obligation over outcome? What I mean is that there is no room for exception. That First of all, this would be no deception or research because you can't get informed consent because they're not really informed about what you are studying and therefore they cannot truly consent, right? Confidentiality would be absolute, no exceptions. You would never, ever speak about anything. That sounds kind of cool until you think about someone sitting across from you telling you that they're going to kill someone. Not that they've dreamt about it, not that they've fantasized about it, but they plan to go kill someone. Well, now that confidentiality becomes a problem. It's why the absolute really, um, none of the ethical guidelines really are absolute. None of them are Kantian. It's really not easy to, it, it really would be impossible for most people to apply. And anyone who did would probably find a lot of problems along the way. The second one I want to talk about is utilitarian or consequentialism. This is driven by a risk-benefit calculation. The whole concept is to serve the greater good. Is what we do serving the greater good. As far as deception and research, this might be acceptable or it might be unacceptable depending on the risk-benefit calculation. So, if it benefits more people to deceive someone in research, then it's okay. If it's not going to benefit enough people or it's not for the greater good, there's not a, it's not acceptable. This, this can be dangerous. And I say that because if you have... Let's look at the United States when slavery was okay. Well, a vast majority of the people benefited from slavery, so it was okay ethically if you use this at its extreme, because the majority of people benefited from slaves. Now, it's abhorrent, and it was human rights violation, and it was not a good thing, but if you use the utilitarian or consequentialism form of ethics, you could justify it, right? Commutarian is based on community values, goals, traditions, and cooperative virtues. The value to the community is what matters. 
this also would allow for class privilege repression of minority groups and, and just generally at an extreme might not be the best way to go about your ethical theory. This also would tie into deception and research by saying, hey, who benefits from it? How much do we benefit from it? What are the values that we have as a community? Does the community say, hey, it's okay? Does the community say, we don't ever lie? I don't know. It would depend on the community and the traditions that you're in. There may be a number of things that would come into play, especially when you start talking about traditions. Depending on what the traditions were, you could justify some pretty horrific things. Or you might be extremely limited to the point where it was hard to benefit anyone. So then we go to relational ethics. Um, the focus is the needs and expectations of the client. This requires a lot of uh, self-awareness, including understanding your personal limitations and boundaries and your competencies. You have to make sure that you are absolutely competent to provide whatever it is you are providing. Uninformed consent would not allow for deception or research if you followed this, this model, as the needs of the client would override everything else. We kind of mix these all up for what the APA comes up with. They have exceptions. They have uh, room for gray areas and making the best realistic decision. And it's because real life is not, it's not easy. It's messy. It's very, uh, very gray in a lot of, a lot of ways. The theory of ethics sounds really great when you sit in a room and you talk about, Hey, we should be ethically this, or we should be ethically that. But when some things come into play and you have a bunch of outside influences, the decision may not be as easy as it was when you were sitting in a boardroom talking to a bunch of other people who have the same education as you, the same background as you. It becomes a little more difficult and a little less black and white. There is a six-step model on how to make an ethical decision. And really, to me, I, I look at it and I say, eh, it's a five-step with a kind of a reminder in there. So the first step is the one that I don't know if you really should count as a step, but it, it's really to maintain your skills and awareness of issues that require ethical consideration, right? And this includes self-care. Now, self-care is a huge deal, and that's a whole conversation by itself. But anytime you're serving others, you need to be aware of self-care, and you need to make sure that you take care of yourself mentally, physically, because the wear of taking care of others can find you in a bad situation. Either you detach from what you're doing, which doesn't serve the per person you're supposed to be serving, or you're so overwhelmed by the challenges and the difficulties someone else is going through that you can't function properly. You lose your objectivity. So the second step is you consider the relevant ethical standards, codes, and principles. That's pretty straightforward. You can look at your state ethics codes. You can look at uh, the APA ethic codes. You can look at your specific area of psychology. It may have a specific set of codes for ethics. I know that if you are working with children, there is a another set of ethical codes that you really need to refer to because they deal a lot with the difference and situations you find with children that you may not find in an adult population. Right. Third, you determine if, you know, if there are ethical laws, state, federal, are there laws around this that you have to consider when you do whatever you need to do as a, as a action for uh, this situation. 
for is to you tend to understand the position of all stakeholders. So yourself, the individual or individuals involved, and of course the state community as well, depending on what their, their stake is in the situation. Now, step five, you take the first four steps and you put it all together and you consider the various ethical theories. You consult with colleagues if it's applicable, maybe get a second opinion without giving up the confidence of who it is uh, or what the details are, if possible, and decide on an action or inaction based on what fulfills your obligations and has the greatest likelihood of protecting the welfare of all of those involved. Now, if there's a big conflict, that may not be possible to protect all of them completely, but you find the one that is most suited. Then step six is you monitor and evaluate the effectiveness and change if necessary and feasible. That sounds pretty straightforward and it might work really well, but you get a situation and consider a therapist who has uh, who does drug counseling and has one-on-ones and group therapy with the same people. And two of the individuals start to date. You find out that heterosexual couple, male, female, she's pregnant, and you happen to know from your therapy that the male is HIV positive. Uh, during your therapy, he talks about their relationship, and you find out he has not told her and will not tell her because she will leave him. Are you obligated to tell her that he has HIV? Well, in this scenario, the state does not require disclosure. It becomes a real challenge because they're both drug users. She's well aware that HIV is in the community. She chose to not have protected sex. You, in your therapy sessions with her, she has not been tested. The real concern then is, what about the baby? Because as an adult, she can make the decision and it is not your place to reveal the HIV because it's not required by law. And the way you know about it would not authorize you to tell her. Except now you have to consider the baby. And if you do the research in this particular case, as it was presented to me, find out that the third trimester is when the baby is most likely to be affected. And in the example, that, as it was given, the therapist decides to continue to encourage him to tell her that he has HIV and to protect the baby. The therapist decides to wait until they approach the third trimester before actually bringing them together and requiring disclosure because at that point it becomes a danger to the third party and the most vulnerable person in the scenario. That still may cause a lot of problems because it's a big, ugly, messy situation. But it's a kind of ethical dilemma that is very likely to happen if you are providing therapy for those who need it most. Working with underserved populations, uh, people who have had a rough life, that's the type of thing that we have to consider. So applying ethics can get that ugly. Uh, it's not as simple as, hey, he told me he has HIV and he's dating someone who is aware of the issues. That's there's All I can do is encourage that individual to reveal that they have HIV if it's not required reporting. Some states require it to be reported. In that case, it becomes a little simpler uh, because you can follow the law and it is not a violation of ethics. Although you may encourage them to do so before going any further and give them the opportunity to resolve it. And that's a big thing with ethics, that an informal resolution 
should be your first go-to. So you see something going on and like, hey, that doesn't quite seem right. And give the person an opportunity to repair or give the person an opportunity to correct the situation. If that seems like it's suitable, then that's it. And that includes yourself. I mean, through no malicious intent, it would it could be easy to find out, hey, wait a minute, I this situation isn't what I thought it was. I didn't completely understand the situation. Now I do, I need to change how I look at it ethically. And that's an ongoing, ongoing task. And I think that the issue you run into is a lot of people don't necessarily think of ethics when they get focused on the job. They get down into the to the work of it and they can they can forget about the ethics. And that and that can be a little bit dangerous. So I think that's the one reason that the first step that I listed is very important. So then the real question would be, you know, what kind of ethical challenges do you face in the world of psychology or outside? It's just kind of curious. Because have you thought about them ethically? Is this the right thing to do? Instead of just going, hey, well, I want this or I think this and being self-oriented. What's the right thing to do as a professional? As a professional. In a personal life, it might help to consider things that way. Hey, what's the right thing to do based on what I my ethics are? And that's another whole other consideration is that, well, in the scenario given with the client who tests positive for HIV, do you personally feel, hey, I need to report this. I need to tell her. Well, that's your personal ethics, but your professional ethics have to be uh, professional ethics, not personal ethics. Now, they may match or they may cl- clash, and that may be a challenge. And that's why you may want to discuss something like that with colleagues. And in the example given, the individual did refer to other coll- colleagues without giving any details in protecting the privacy of her clients. She just gave the situation to some other uh, therapists and discussed the ethical nature of what she needed to do. She even referred to the APA board to find out their stance. Those are all good steps. Those are all important things, but they, yeah, it makes it for a messy, a messy day. (laughs) And that's why ethics are so important in psychology, uh, because it's going to get messy and you have to do the best you can and understand that you need to make sure that you understand your biases, your predispositions, your personal limitations in the community, uh, online communities that I've been in, there's a thing called white knighting. If you chat online at all, it, it becomes annoying because it basically is someone trying to impose their ethical view on the rest of the chat room or the people chatting and trying to protect someone who probably doesn't need protected per se. Someone's joking, having a, have a good time talking about things, uh, discussing real, um, sometimes pretty controversial items. This person is trying to impose their ethical view on everything and protect people, quote-unquote, in quotes, from a view that differs from theirs. And that's just a real basic idea of someone stepping out of their lane of trying to enforce personal ethics into a situation where they aren't appropriate. So that's the things that I'm thinking about. Those are the things I've been talking about this week. If you have some ideas, feel free to email me. I'll be happy to discuss them, and I'll bring it up on the podcast. And otherwise, I have to say, uh, as I wrap this up for today, be good to each other, take care of yourself, rock on.